The US water sector looks much like a giant Rubik's Cube right now. In fact, here would be some of the tiles. 63 million Americans are potentially exposed to unsafe drinking water. One third of US drinking water and wastewater operators will be eligible for retirement in the next five years. PFOA was determined in 2022 to be 100,000 times more toxic by the US EPA than they thought in 2009. There are 1.7 million water professionals in the US. 85% of water and wastewater utilities have three or fewer employees. Pipes in excellent condition went from 69% in 1980 to 33% in 2020. Very poor ones went from 2% to 23%. The country features 51,000 water utilities and about 16,000 wastewater utilities. Treating PFAS would cost $370 billion. 2.2 million Americans have no access to water at all. The American Jobs Plan proposes a $111 billion investment in water infrastructure and ESG assets will surpass $41 trillion in 2022 globally. Bingo! These styles are pretty mixed today, yet we might be at a turning point. What would it take to solve the riddle? Where can we act first? Who can help? And how? For this video series, I've left my cushy studio to meet with 20 experts in New York. Welcome to New York! Academics, politicians, water industry CEOs, investors, best-selling authors, influencers, NGO leaders and more with a simple aim, getting the essence of the American water challenges and gathering the best solutions in order to solve this Rubik's Cube. The series starts today and it will be in five parts. So if you haven't done it yet, consider subscribing to this channel if you want to make sure you don't miss one critical leg of the journey. For today, let's answer this question. What's to rethink in water? Would you accept everything as an answer? Probably not. I would even bet you would be surprised to discover how much there is to rethink in water, especially in the US, or even that there is something to rethink at all. We have people who don't have access to clean water. We have people who don't have access to the ability to discharge wastewater. So these are the most publicized problems associated with water. Per the United Nations count, and as of 2021, that's 2.2 billion people without clean water worldwide. And 44% of the wastewater that gets discharged untreated. But that's not the end of it. From a sustainability perspective, people start talking to you about scarcity and places where people are no longer able to grow crops. All of these challenges are vivid and daunting, yet they suffer from a fatal disease. They get easily filtered out by our brains. Big numbers that are hard to grasp. I understand nothing. Challenges in places far away. Well, really, far away? We had a few years ago Cape Town and Rio as day zero, so they got a lot of publicity. But it's not that easy for people to connect to these issues in their own life because they seem remote. Water issues also mean floods. Water issues also mean that we will have droughts in a place that is normally well stocked with water. Why don't you explain this to me like I'm five? It's happening much closer than you think and in many more shapes than you'd expect. Jakarta, with a lot of pumping, is now going to be replaced by a new city because it sank. Oh, that's interesting. It's Jakarta. It's not happening here. Well, it is happening in California. It is happening in Houston. It's happening in various places. We just don't realize that sometimes. We've taken it for granted. We've done a lot of damage, both in terms of supply and water quality, but we also have neglected to bring people into the equation. Yet the water crisis has a bigger sibling that's been relatively successful in bringing people into the equation, climate change. 
Could you look me in the eyes and tell me you've never heard of zero carbon or climate change? I hope not, unless you have a much better poker face than Lady Gaga herself. This conversation is truly related to environmental justice and how it's a conversation that's getting picked up when we talk about climate change. It's not getting picked up as much when we talk about water resources and access, however. The link between siblings rapidly gets apparent, though. That intersection of aging infrastructure and climate change is creating a level of unprecedented awareness around the world, but we need to move people beyond fear because fear paralyzes it causes political division and we do not need that at this point in time we need to get away from our communities and silos and think across different organizations and different businesses so would you now agree with me that there is something to rethink in water i'm sure you do and when it comes to what we have to rethink we start identifying patterns we have to rethink what the problem really is with water. Yes, there are broken pipes, and yes, there are systems that don't work particularly well, but to resolve the challenges in water, it's really three-dimensional. So yes, broken pipes. The second dimension would be what I'll call broken economics, right? Or, or the inability to see the water crisis from the true economics that exists behind it. And the third is policy, public policy, or broken policy. Let's start with this broken pipe. The Environment Protection Agency regularly surveys the US infrastructure, providing us with an overview of the current state of the water system, but also how it evolves over time. And it's unsettling. In 1980, 69% of the drinking water pipes were classified as excellent and 2% as very poor. In 2020, only 33% made it to excellent, while the very poor proportion had been multiplied by more than 10 to reach 23%. This is the worst! To give you a sense of the challenge, over a quarter of Philadelphia's piping infrastructure was installed in the 19th century, and recent construction works in downtown Manhattan excavated wooden drinking water pipes from the early Arundel Alexander Hamilton times. When we look beyond the anecdote, we start realizing the size of the challenge. There's 5,000 water utilities that have been abandoned, that are not doing well in generating polluted water to 21 million Americans. What do you mean by abandoned? They ran out of money. There's 52,000 water utilities in the U.S. Many of them are little and they don't have a lot of capital and they run out of money to continue to upgrade their little water utility. According to Mora Aller, Hawei Wu and Upmanu Lol, in a 2018 study, 63 million Americans are potentially exposed to unsafe drinking water. A 2019 study by the Natural Resource Defense Council, Coming Clean and the Environmental Justice Health Alliance even removes the potentially adverb by showing how almost 45 million people receive water from 5,634 water systems with a combined 23,040 health-based violations over just three years. That figure is picked up in Dig Deep's Closing the Gap report, co-written with the US Water Alliance. And they are adding another astonishing statistic. At Dig Deep, we're focused on the 2.2 million Americans who don't have any access to water or wastewater services at home. And I think it's not so much about rethinking, it's about thinking maybe for the first time about mm. these Americans. But wait, when the the world's largest economy leaves so many citizens on the roadside. Isn't it a sign of broken policy? Let's find out. The 15th June 2022, the EPA published a new drinking water health advisory for PFAS chemicals. Oh my god! Okay, it's happening! Everybody stay calm! What's the procedure, everyone? What's the procedure? Stay calm! Wait, 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 wait! Everybody calm down! 
that publication was intentional on many levels, notably introducing advisory levels for GenX and PFBS and lowering the threshold for PFOS and PFOA. Let's focus on these last chemicals to sense the magnitude of that change. Compared to 2016, the EPA now determined PFOA to be 17,000 times more toxic and compared to 2009, we talk of 100,000 times more toxicity. You think it was just this year that we discovered PFOS was a problem? We've known PFOS is a problem for a while now and yet we just let it go and let it go and let it go. And that's the model we have used is that things are unregulated or so lightly regulated that they're functionally unregulated. Back in the bad old days with DuPont and 3M, EPA knew the results of a lot of the studies that were being done and did not act. But we have to play catch up. We have to do everything faster now than we would have had we addressed these issues sooner. If we zoom out from the PFAS topic, the picture that reveals is twofold. First, policies have been lagging behind for a while. And second, even when policies tend to catch up, they are still lousily enforced. We have the worst of both worlds in America. We have these 50,000 plus utilities. We have a lot of regulations and the EPA can't possibly, not possibly speak with more than a handful of utilities per day, per week, per month, per year. And so therefore, a lot of them just sort of are floating along as if they have no supervision at all. So that the regulatory regime is theoretical, not, not practical. But why would policies be so loose if water is so essential for life, economic activities and safety on all levels? Are you serious? Ugh. Well, simply because water is undervalued on all levels. We'll come back to that. So if any kind of leader starts focusing money or efforts on water, it will inevitably be questioned for all the wrong reasons. I've had many mayors and many world leaders tell me that they're not aware of any politician in the history of mankind that ever got elected with votes for spending money on water. Yet, many studies show that investing in water, be it in drinking water infrastructure when that's not existing, in water risk prevention, or in the reconnection of people with water streams is always profitable, and sometimes even highly profitable. So why this disconnect? Probably because of broken economics. What is this misunderstanding about the economics of water? That's a great question. And I think that's the single issue that creates all the other problems. And the answer to that is that most people perceive water to be free. Very few people actually understand the true value of water. I talked about many studies just a second ago. Let's just quote some here. The University of Michigan demonstrated how each dollar invested in river restoration in cities like Buffalo or Detroit yielded a $4 windfall for the overall economy. The OECD demonstrated how there's a 7 to 1 benefit to cost ratio when it comes to rolling out water and wastewater infrastructures worldwide. And Dig Deep showed how you get a $5 economic return for $1 invested in access to toilets and taps for US families. And that's just a short selection. So, Assuming most of the people in charge are much more clever than I am, what is it that they can't see in such straightforward economic benefits? The reason that that has continued is because we have a wrong pockets problem, what economists would call yeah. this wrong pockets problem. You know, the, the societal benefits don't accrue to the same folks that would necessarily make the investment to solve the problem. Let me give you an example. A community suffers from health diseases because of tap water of doubtful quality. Nothing outrageous, but still cases of diarrhea and similar symptoms. It will impact businesses around because their workers will call in sick. Some others will lose time to boil water or travel around to get bottled water instead at a higher expense. School time will be lost, impacting the community's long-term prospects. Hospitals will have slightly higher occupations and so on 
and so on. Now, if the local water utility steps in and invests in solving the problem, the overall community will swiftly measure the benefits. Thank you! But the utility itself won't get any additional cent for that. Benefits will land in the wrong pocket. There's actually a simple symptom that underlines the entire difficulty around the economics of water. We are not charged the right amount of money for water. That's to say we're not charged enough. Indeed, utilities could overcome the wrong pocket symptom if they were allowed to charge an appropriate amount for water and at least a full cost recovery. But wait! Why should they charge more for something that is freely available almost everywhere on Earth? Good question! Maybe because we've done our semantics wrong all that time. Water companies don't charge for water. They charge for its collection, treatment, management and distribution. And unlike water, that doesn't come for free. No, that's not the only paradox we face. The average cost for bottled water is about $5 a gallon. The average cost to produce tap water through American infrastructure is slightly less than one penny per gallon. So it's a massive difference. And yet people complain about the price that they have to pay for water, yet they'll buy bottled water. At today's pace and by 2034, the world will spend more on bottled water than it does on utility water. $598 billion a year to be spent on Evian, Aquafina or Dasani. That's more than the GDP of a country like Belgium. In countries like Mexico, the inflection point where bottled water investment takes over is already crossed, while the USA is close to it. Almost there. Indeed, the United States is the largest market globally for packaged water, an overwhelming majority of it being for discretionary consumption. I think we need to rethink the value of water. Societal value, economic value, all of that. For all these reasons and more, it has been difficult to convey that water could be a profitable field. Yet, if we all agree that large conglomerates don't think twice about making a profit from bottled water, we shouldn't shy away from doing so in all infrastructure water and wastewater. The reason why that matters the most is that it opens new avenues. I think we, we need to kind of take a little step back and, and say what is it that we're trying to achieve and how can we do that with private capital? I think the private sector, when you rethink it, is really where you're going to get the most change. Because the private sector is driven by economics, is driven by market dynamics and not driven by a political agenda. That's where things get done. Fixing broken economics by leveraging new approaches? That sounds like a good prospect. Unless we get dragged into a last major threat, conservatism. You can't think of another industry, transportation, education, the military, publishing, I mean, you name it, where there hasn't been revolutionary changes in just the last 20 years and probably several revolutions in the last 20 years. And yet water, we tend to be doing what we were doing in terms of municipal water. We tend to be doing what we were doing 75 and 100 years ago. And in terms of agricultural water, lamentably, we're doing what we were doing uh, thousands of years ago. Sure, the water sector is conservative for a full set of good reasons. You don't want to play with your user's health and cities like Flint have bet to know that changes that weren't thought through could have dramatic consequences. Yet, there's also that well-known saying that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. The reality is that we live in a changing world where water scarcity, aging infrastructure, intensified urbanization and all the other drivers we've been listing so far change the name of the game. So it might be time to adapt the rules as well. Should we do what we've done in the past or should we think a little laterally? Because we are evolving so quickly, we can't rely upon 
traditional technology or traditional systems, we need to embrace the new technology we have because what that will do is allow us to be more adaptive to what we have to face in the future. Indeed, new technologies in water often aren't that new when you look at them. Crossing the chasm in this sector rather takes decades than the Mount Silicon Valley moguls have accustomed us to. And that inertia can act as a significant inhibitor for the striving of a specific segment of water actors, water entrepreneurs. The one thing that we can rethink is to cultivate more entrepreneurship within water and wastewater. We need more entrepreneurs, we need more people starting companies, and it has to be less scary to do that. For water entrepreneurs, going all in on the technology they develop and believe in can indeed be quite scary. What if, despite proof of concept, it suffers from death by piloting? Wouldn't they be better off in adjacent segments like energy or agriculture? Worse, entrepreneurs aren't the only resource that tends to run scarce in our conservative sector. How we can begin to attract young folks to begin to look at water and rethink water, but also have careers in water as well. Our most prized natural resources are our young people. From Mississippi to Beijing, from France to California, we have to look at young folks across the world. There are about 1.7 million workers in the extended water sector in the US, but that number may soon go down. Indeed, the 53% of water workers that have high school diplomas or less may well get paid up to 50% more than the national average for similar profiles, but the attractivity of the sector remains low. The 85% male, 66% white demography also rounds up with water operators that are, on average, about five years older than the national median. In 2016, when polled for Brookings report, many utilities had shared the same alarming message. They were facing up to 50% vacancies combined with a lack of public visibility that wasn't drawing for a better future. So let's conclude here the first leg of this video series. As we've seen, there's a lot to rethink in water, and it might be scary. Yet, identifying the challenges is also the first step towards solving them. As an academic institution, we want to bring the collection of those problems together, think about what are the ways by which we can solve them. And solution here means something that is technical, something that is financial, and then how is it going to be implemented and stay fixed? Not that you know somebody flies in, has a flashy thing, and then a couple of years later, there's nothing to show. It's an academic field in that sense, because what we are studying is the diagnosis of the problems all the way through to sustainable solutions. Stay tuned. In the next chapter, we'll explore solutions, starting with a way to fix water's broken economics. Let me spit that out. Water is a profitable investment field. Private money can do great things. And when rightfully oriented, it's a sure win-win. And yes, I know, affirming that from downtown Manhattan can awaken goss from a time when all of the above was proven wrong. New York has long been infamous for being a city that had everything but water. From its early Dutch times to its British history, all the way to its first 60 years of American independence, Big Apple didn't have any reliable source to draw its water from. And while Philadelphia would strive as a result of a collective effort to bring pure and wholesome water into everyone's home, New York fell victim to some high elites greed, biased policy and misuse of capital. Shit. That would hamper the city's effort to get water, indirectly cost millions in devastating fires, and significantly impact its population several times through water-based epidemics. I've already shortly mentioned the culprits in the previous chapter, Aaron Burr, Alexander Hamilton, and a bunch of their acquaintances. In the electric city! 
Just before the turn of the 19th century, they created the Manhattan Company, a group with broad rights and few obligations. And I never got caught, neither. Another false nose of supplying the city with pure and wholesome water, it leveraged a surplus capital close which indeed allowed it to become a bank. Over the decades of its water business, the Manhattan Company barely crossed financial break-even, which was already a significant accomplishment as they had no real durable access to a water source. Making money selling water without water? That was possible with a simple trick, not investing in a water network either. Who needs that? The rest is banking history, and it was proven to be incredibly profitable. Bottom line, it's only when New York decided to make the water topic a public one again that it finally got its first safe water deliveries from the Croton watershed. As that proved that nothing profitable can result from the involvement of private capital in water, thankfully, not at all. Had the Manhattan Company not been created by senators, general attorneys and future vice presidents, it would probably not have been able to distort policies thus far. Sorry, not sorry. The real lesson to remember here is that water economics and water policies are a powerful duo that has to work hand in hand. The analogy or the metaphor would be a race car. If you're trying to develop the fastest race car, you want to put an engine in it that is of immense horsepower. That's American industry, that's the, the private sector. The government's role is the steering wheel, the tires, and that which sits around it. So how do you develop that immense horsepower? Actually, it starts with finding the right blend. Something we'll cover in just a minute after I remind you that if you like what you see today, you should probably consider subscribing to this channel. Indeed, this video is the second chapter of a five-step journey you probably don't want to miss out on the next steps. Or do you? I think not! When you think of it, if handled right, tap water has a strong value proposition. Tap water is clean, reliable, healthy, on demand, and it has a profound price differential. Less than one penny a gallon versus $5 a gallon. So if the American water utility industry can make the marketing value proposition pitch that you can trust your tap, that it's going to be reliable, it's always going to be healthy and of high quality, it will win the battle. You know that. In marketing terms, a strong value proposition leads to a good market share, great service, happy customers, and ultimately, profit. Now, that path isn't always so straightforward. You really have to handle water rights. And to do so, you need to rightfully invest twice. First, by laying down the appropriated infrastructure. In most US cases, this was done a while ago, yet appropriately revamping that said infrastructure is equally important. And when infrastructure doesn't exist yet, other approaches might be more effective, but that's a story I'll keep for later. The problem is that this means a lot of money to sink in upfront, especially when you're a relatively small community. The trap, though, is that underinvesting ultimately results in even higher costs, so counterintuitively, no one should be rich enough to go cheap. Indeed, that's the second investment, allocating reasonable operating costs to run your system over time efficiently. What's the secret? Well, it's a compound of maintenance effort and infrastructure management. As a result, the key to success in that endeavor is a matter of scale. It would be best if you had deep pockets up front and the soundest know-how all the way up the 
that. Two characteristics that appeal to the private sector. Private money's involvement in water isn't all new in the US. If by the volume 88% of the population is served by public systems, when it comes to number of actual systems, about 22,000 or about 44% are privately owned. Indeed, a good portion of these private water utilities are on the smaller end or even operated as a side business of a different industry. And for long, it had consequences. The water infrastructure crisis, it's not looming, it's already here. Over and over again, I've seen lead in the drinking water serving daycares. I've seen receiving water bodies that are biologically dead. You know, I've seen places with intermittent water service or water service that they can't even use their laundry because there's so much iron manganese in the system, right? So all that is happening right now. After being exposed to that multiple times, I realized there's gotta be a private solution to this very public problem. This private sector's involvement would take the shape of central states water resources a company Josiah Fox created in 2014. Last year, there were 208 M&A water utility transactions. We were 80 of those. We really focused on rolling up these small systems and the states we're in. We've gone to states with the highest amount of fragmentation, the most amount of small systems, and the highest amount of regulatory non-compliance. So we're trying to solve a problem that obviously exists in every state we're in. Interestingly, CSWR has been regularly topping the M&A leaderboard in the number of deals in the year, but never in the number of connections or customers. There's a simple reason. The company focuses on small, distressed, non-compliant plants. That's actually where the flip is the most effective. It enables a consolidator to unlock a scale effect among a scattered cluster of systems. And spoiler alert, we'll see in the next chapter how that approach may do well in the long run. And as it takes a losing situation, bad water in the wrong hands, to turn it into a win-win, good water at a profit, it sounds like a no-brainer positive move. I, I see this as an absolute win. So for the 15-person already private utilities, there's a clear success path in realizing Set Seagull's recommendation, consolidating them into distributed giants powered by private money. But what about the other 85%? Because as we know in, in the US, 85% of the industry is publicly held utility companies. The US EPA estimates that they will need to invest $470 billion in the next 20 years to keep the water quality afloat. And it might be more. The US probably needs a trillion dollars of infrastructure and water. Needless to say, public investment programs don't match these numbers. No shit, Sherlock. In 2021, the Biden-Harris administration announced the unlocking of $111 billion. That was historic, unprecedented, yet far from being enough. That can't be done by governments alone. And with the advent of infrastructure funds, with the focus now in the investment community on water, I think it's a nice convergence of capital, technology and need will really accelerate the growth of the industry, the focus on the sector. Succeeding in that endeavor may require breaking a taboo in the US. Around the world, we find that it is more market driven and we are okay with private ownership of water utilities, UK, Manila, you just go around the world. US, I think we're somewhat afraid to attack that issue. A way forward would be about finding the right blend of private and public capital or said differently, it will be about private-public partnerships. I think we're gonna be friends. And when I'm with friends, 
I like to have fun, 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 fun! Will these PPP players still be the same as the private consolidators? You know, obviously we're a privatization play, so we're a pure play water and wastewater utility, investor-owned utility. We'll see if that gets traction, because these small municipalities don't have the cash flows to do the improvements that are necessary. So can there be an approachment, engagement with the private sector, whether the municipality still owns the assets? That's yet to be determined. I'm just a mailman here, but if CSWR was to enter this new extension of the game, it would get backing from its current investor. We're investing in a, primarily in the private piece of that, but we think that private capital has a role to play across the industry. I'm glad you came along, partner. But aside from private consolidators, that new approach will also require the involvement of new players. We are big believers and proponents of that public-private partnership because it's more than just the financial capital. It's aligning objectives and measurements of success for a community beyond purely the financial metric. Multifaceted partners have skin in the game together to drive success. I think that it also reduces oftentimes the noise, the conflict that is based upon legacy or the past rather than fact. And I think it can galvanize. This partnership can come in many shapes, but the conventional approach is to have a private company financing upfront an infrastructure asset against a revenue-based contract that repays it over time, typically 15 to 30 years. Before the popularization of PPPs, a public body designed a new water infrastructure with private companies then bidding on it, building it and transferring it. But according to Public Works financing research, Adopting design-build approaches where private companies were allowed to submit their own designs enabled the U.S. water sector to save 39% on capital. And adding a third initial to the acronym with design-build operates enabled a further 26% reduction in life cycle costs. Hence, when a public body enters in a private-public partnership, it unlocks the benefits of this private sector's involvement minus the profits the private company is planning over the contract. This is why even the United Nations have been promoting the PPP approach, assuming it would follow some best practices such as the fair sharing of risks and rewards, aka neither extreme risk transfer nor extreme profits. What you have to begin to do is look at some of these vehicles, the federal funding vehicles, but look at private equity as a source as well to get consistent rates, get rates that's probably going to be consistent and level out versus the increased regressive rates that you're going to see to fix an old aging system. Another perk of the PPP approach is that a municipality avoids cashing out upfront, which alleviates the burden on mayors. Politicians are doing an amazing job, but politicians are similar to CEOs. They're only appointed for a short period of time. So with that in mind, do they make the investment appropriately to get the return, particularly if it's in a pipe that no one can see? I think something around that has to change. Around fines and persecutions, we don't want industry to slow down and we don't want the industry to be scared of making a front step forward, but we need to penalize those that are doing it in a reckless manner. So a reckless manner is not thinking about the community or the people that they serve. Now let's face it, PPPs also come with a bad rap. The mechanism may have been overused in the 1990s on projects that were probably too broad and left a lot of space for the reckless manners James alluded to. There are many, many, many examples of success of this around the world. Far more successes by a factor of exponentially than any failures along the way. It doesn't mean it's always perfect, but it has proven itself 
to be a significant alternative. These successes have led PPPs to jump by a 146% increase between 2020 and 2021 in the water and sanitation sector worldwide. Another sign that the tool, when used right, is a clear asset in water management's toolbox. Now, as promising as the private consolidation and the private-public partnership paths may be, they won't solve the world alone. Public-private partnership has proven itself to be a significant alternative. It's not the only alternative for funding, but it is one. There have always been private-public partnerships, but I think right now, due to the systematic issues that climate change and water pose, these solutions can't grow in isolation. This is where a third mechanism comes into play, government funding. The second, in my view, is much more federal money, whether it be in the U.S., whether it be in Europe, whether it be in China, where there's large infrastructure funding discussions happening. Obviously, I may not be objective, but when I look at the return on investment, both economically and socially, of redirecting more of those dollars to water infrastructure as a basic human right, to have access to it and the impact it has on economic value of businesses when they're facing water stress. I don't believe that we're putting enough money that's already been approved in the overall infrastructure packages. Not enough of that money is being directed towards water. This speaks to the dichotomy I was alluding to earlier. We need $1 trillion and we get a historic yet insufficient $111 billion. But why should more money come from governments when I demonstrated earlier that investing in water was profitable? Why wouldn't infrastructure funds foot the bill? It's actually a matter of wrong pockets. We have a wrong pockets problem, what economists would call yeah. this wrong pocket problem. You know, the, the societal benefits don't accrue to the same folks that would necessarily make the investment to solve the problem. And in the U.S., in, in most cases, that's either municipalities leveraging federal funds as loans or forgivable grants that they have to prove their eligibility for, or it's private water companies who are economically disincentivized because of this wrong pockets yeah. problem from extending these systems. On the other end, more state money would push us into the next challenge federal infrastructure or inflation regulation plans naturally call for large projects when the appropriate scale might be different. How are we going to efficiently and equitably deploy these funds? And no doubt big infrastructure is important, but as I've seen being in the weeds for the past six years doing grassroots water projects in Flint, Michigan, Navajo Nation, Tanzania, you really gotta get on the ground and understand the local context. In short, we will need more federal funding as that's the level where the windfalls will be collected, but we then also need the entire value chain to transfer as much power as possible from the engine to the wheels. It's gonna take a coordinated response. It's going to take federal investment. Understanding that when we do make that investment, it's going to achieve an incredible economic return for us. But it is the biggest investment in history. And I think we would all do well to keep our eyes on the way that investment is getting pushed out the door. That way, we will avoid the famous pitfall Reinhard Hübner expressed on my podcast microphone. Too much stupid money is chasing too little good targets. You're going to have to dig it up a lot better than that. But before we wrap up this chapter, we have to address one more pocket of money. We've seen how private money can do well in consolidating private assets, how private money, technology, and know-how can join forces with public bodies to build successful partnerships, and how events eventually will need more federal investment. Yet, there is a fast track to efficiency that can put the rollout of these solutions on steroids, philanthropic capital. Philanthropy has that incredible feature. It is meant to be lost. 
Yet, I'd bet donors wouldn't complain if that money were to achieve a maximized impact. And that's where players like Merton Capital Partners play a new role. We're basically creating deals where philanthropy can be invested with later stage private companies that can take in a lot of capital that is inexpensive capital and that allows them to do things with much greater impact. The keyword here is blend. A fraction of sunk philanthropic capital in the broader blend of for-profit private money and public funds can make a deal profitable, hence getting all the parties to agree on it. Two water areas Merton has been looking into so far are first, the 5,000 abandoned water utilities that ran out of money and contributed to the 44 million Americans that got exposed to Safe Drinking Water Act violations, and second, the coastal wastewater treatment plants, or rather, the absence of it. With three or 400 million of philanthropy, you can probably increase the wastewater capacity in South Florida to bring back the reefs and have an explosion of seagrass that is incredible. For that to happen, there is a last hurdle to overcome. It's tough to find philanthropists who want to give to water infrastructure because they don't know about the problems. And they always see that, well, that's a government issue. So this time, it boils down to spreading the right messages and educating the general public about the water challenges. Something we'll cover in chapter four. Thank you! For now, you shall go on and watch this video to find out how to establish the right level and scale to tackle our broken pipes problem now that we hopefully covered how we will solve water's broken economics. Fact! The single largest contributors to life expectancy increase over time centralized sewer. From Homo sapiens all the way to the 19th century dandies in London, everybody was aware that drinking good water meant you survived and hence knew about the importance of access to clean water. But on the other hand, the importance of proper sanitation in human health was totally ignored. This is why most of our modern cities used to be swamps in the beginning and why everybody found absolutely logical to dispose of their droppings on the streets. And as a consequence, humankind learned the hard way how important wastewater collection and treatment is, as this had obviously serious impacts on public health along with the environment. But while numerous epidemics ravaged Europe through the Middle Age and until the 19th century, humans still tended to have short memories and easily forgot that inappropriate sanitation wasn't helping at all. No, I don't know why, but there's something wrong with it. It stinks. They also forgot that a centralized sewer used to be a thing as far as in the Babylonian ages in the Mesopotamian Empire, so around 3,500 years before Christus. And indeed, when the centralized sewer made its comeback at the turn of the 19th century, Josiah Cox was proven right, the adoption of wastewater collection was single-handedly responsible for four years of additional life expectancy. So why would anyone in his right mind even question the pertinence of centralized sewers? Well, for one simple reason, they're very expensive. Once you look at the existing systems, around 70 to 75% of the cost is actually in the pipes and pumps not in the treatment and not in the storage. So you look at that and say, well, these pipes are failing and they cost half a million a mile to replace. But shall we really consider the costs for something deeply linked to people's well-being? Theoretically, no, unless we have a better alternative. One thing that is different than in the beginning of the 20th century is that we have a lot of digital information that we can gather using sensors and actually even control our infrastructure systems remotely. You don't really need 10 chemists at 10 treatment plants and 10 pump operators at 10 pumps to do this. We can do all this remotely. In other words, we can drop a tremendous portion of the 75% of costs linked to pumping water around long networks while operating similar treatment steps just at a smaller scale. Small is the 
point. Small is all I need. Now, if we're honest, we haven't reinvented that concept in the water sector. We've rather been looking at the shoulder of our bigger brother, the energy world. With the advent of technology and deregulation, you ended up with microgrids that then turned into distributed energy. The same concept applied to water translates into a decentralized infrastructure close to people's homes and industrial processes, but centrally connected thanks to the digital revolution. And the name for it is straightforward, distributed water. I like it, simple. $7.8 billion will be invested in distributed water and wastewater systems in 2023 in North America. That's a sizable number, even though arguably lower than the $111 billion water infrastructure package we discussed in the previous chapter. The difference reduces when you consider that those $111 billion will be spent over five years, hence reducing to $22 billion a year. That's good money. It further reduces when you compound the implementation speed. While large infrastructure projects are rolled out in years, the agility of the distributed approach allows for reducing that time to impact to months. Boom! Faster! Faster, guys! Something else reveals when you further split down these $7.8 billion, which are growing at a compound annual growth rate of 6%. There's a faster-growing sub-segment, the point-of-use application, aka all the shades of filters you'd install under your kitchen sink. That specific sub-segment grows double-digit every year and is expected to nearly triple between today and 2030. In other words, investment in distributed treatments grows twice faster than investment in central infrastructure, and the specific point-of-view sub-segment grows three times faster. There's a simple way to tell those filters are the new cool kid on the block. Five years ago, if you went to Amazon and you wanted to buy a reverse osmosis filtration system for your kitchen, you were looking at spending $500 for the unit, and you would buy filters separate. It would reject two thirds of the water you put into it as waste. Relatively low pressure system, not that great. Mm -hmm. Today, if you go to Amazon, there will be more vendors than you saw five years ago. And for between $100 to $200, you'll get a system exactly like that with one year's of filters included. And for $500, you get something which rejects less than 25% of the water coming into it and actually performs a lot better than any of the other systems and has all kinds of sensors and stuff like that telling you what you're actually consuming. Now, point of use treatments also propose an ambivalent picture of the future. Yes, they unlock a world of water fit for purpose, where your kitchen tap gets to the highest level of drinking water, even knocking off PFAS and the like as a welcome side effect, and your toilet flush now can happily be done with lower quality water. But that's also a double-sided sword. If the water infrastructure doesn't need to deliver drinking standards to every tap, investments may further decline, when we just saw in the previous chapter that the opposite must happen. Whoops. Whoops. And did you say whoops? And central networks being slowly abandoned to turn into the post-utility era isn't exactly science fiction. India, at this point, there is no household which is middle class and above that does not have a reverse osmosis system in their kitchen. This radically decentralized treatments hence potentially offer a better service level at a lower cost, but with possible class discrimination as all households won't invest in it at the same speed and won't always maintain it appropriately. Is there a better offer? Sure, we can imagine workarounds. Speaking now very fancifully, very 
Jetsons-ish future, but we could very logically have a situation there where somebody comes knocking on your door and says, we've noticed from our internet ship that you haven't changed the filter. Is there a reason for that? I don't want to be too big brother. If somebody wants to to toxicize their system, they should be allowed to do that. But I think that, that there are solutions that we could have without being too fanciful or too crazy. Yet, a maybe better alternative would be to distribute the systems in a slightly less radical manner. The wastewater that I'm generating, that could be treated and reused also. Maybe not just at my house scale, but maybe in my neighborhood scale. And if that is possible, I'm really shooting for a much higher quality of service and safety for myself. We are talking here of systems to be located in a collective building's basement. And if you allow me that shameless plug, you may want to listen to my conversation with Aaron Tartakovsky from Epic Cleantech by season four, episode three of my podcast to learn more about that approach. Shame. An alternative, yet close approach, would be to aim for the size of the condominiums we see in other parts of the world. It may sound weird in the American context, yet what's a condominium if not a newly built suburban housing estate? So, in a nutshell, please, tell us what you prepared. Distributed water and wastewater already receive a third of the infrastructure investment today and they grow twice faster than conventional central alternatives. As they skip a sizable portion of the network rollout or revamping, they arguably offer a considerably better value for money and technically the best size may be up to each point of use, yet if we compound in sociology, a better approach may be the small collective layer. I feel like we're really making a huge step forward here in our quest to rethink water. But let's make sure we don't miss the elephant in the room. If your only focus is municipal, you're missing the largest piece from a volume standpoint. Indeed, municipal water in the US represented 13% of the water use in 2015, while agricultural uses accounted for 37% and industrial ones for the remaining 50%. That's a lot. We can further split down this 50% by taking out the large chunk of water used in thermoelectrical power generation, like the toilet flush in our households. That water just needs to exist, not really to be treated to a high standard. And the same would be valid with irrigation water in agriculture. And in the remaining waters used in industrial processes, but also aquaculture or mining, there is a fascinating trend to observe. Between 1985 and 2015, the volume of water abstraction was reduced by 43%. How's that even possible? Well, sure, some industries have moved out of the US and some others have become more water efficient. But the big chunk of that reduction is linked to water reuse and recycling within industrial facilities. Both are driven by environmental regulations and limited availability of freshwater resources in some areas. Well, necessity is the mother of invention. As these constraints are here to stay in the new realm of climate change, that trend will keep on developing. Pick an industrial system. I don't care if it's a, a chip manufacturer, which by the way, we, we worry about chips. 60% of the chips come from Taiwan. They're having their worst drought in 60 years. Wonder why there's a chip issue. With all these drivers, water scarcity, environmental regulations, industrial resilience, water reuse and short loop treatments have a lot of wind in their sails. Sweetheart, we're taking off. Remember the $7.8 billion distributed water and wastewater system investment I mentioned earlier in this chapter? Well, 65% of it is going to industrial systems. Now, that doesn't mean either that industrial suddenly all became water and wastewater treatment experts. Their core competence remains in their industrial tool. So how can they ensure their water safety? Simply by establishing private-private partnerships. That doesn't exist. Okay. 
that term doesn't exist. I totally made it up to reflect on the private public model we discussed in the previous chapter. But still, the principle remains. A large entity, the industrial player, delegates the water topic to a specialist, a water industry player. It's now an operating expense on a long-term contracted basis. You take it away from, I have to worry about this system from an operating standpoint, to a CFO type decision as far as mm. whether to outsource or not. And I use outsourcing generically. I mean, you can call it integration, you can call it EPC, you can call it anything you want, but it's taking assets which would normally be inside the fence and turning it into a, a third-party contracted. Industrials that follow that route prove to get better water resilience, environmental compliance, and overall integration within the community. What? <laughs> you think that's not an industrial's first key performance indicator? Well, they get their water and waste to sort it at a better cost, too. But wait, if distributed approaches get widely adopted, what does that mean for the existing networks and infrastructures? Is it a sunk cost that can't be valorized anymore? Not really. There's still value to extract from our century-old workhorses. Climate change's effect on the water cycle actually doesn't stop at water scarcity. It also comes with more extreme climate events with higher frequency. In that context, cities will not only have to mitigate the periods of drought, the famous day zeros we've seen in Cape Town, Chennai or Sao Paulo, but also deal with increased floods. Nature-based solutions represent a potent complement to existing grey engineering approaches, yet they won't be suited in every context. Think of New York City. Where would you build the next green space on top of Central Park? We don't have storage in a place like Manhattan, but we have an extensive sewer network which is large pipes. If you think about storms, the storms move from south to north, or the storms come in from the east and go to the west. So if we were to start thinking about where is the water coming into the sewers and where is it going, Montreal has already done some experiments where they have gates and pumps. The sewer system itself is being used for storage. So where at the moment we don't really have that much rain coming in, water is pumped from other areas to those sewers mm -hmm. and around in other ways. Guess what that builds up for? Exactly. Distributed sewer management with several decentralized pump and gate stations and one centralized digital layer that follows meteorological trends and predictions to actuate and automate the network. In the end, it's not about opposing the centralized approach to the distributed one. Both assets have perks and limitations. Leveraging the sunk cost of the one while redirecting more investment and beefing up the second will deliver an amazing synergy that finally allows the rethinking of water and not disrupt it. And now that we've agreed on the problem and examined how we may fix the broken economics and the broken pipes, remember, that was our previous chapter. It's time to get to the last question that matters. How do we get the ball rolling? Well, that's right here. And I'll wait for you with solutions in the last chapter. What do Survivor, Fear the Walking Dead or Next and Afraid have in common? Well, as soon as Survival starts, they look for water. It's literally the first thing a human does when returning to his primal instinct. How do we bring that sense back into the life of 330 million Americans? That's the question we'll try to answer with my first tip. Better communicate about the water challenges. Oh, bravo. That's so easy. It's a pity no one ever thought of it before a French genius suggested it. You sound angry. I'm damn angry. I know. Don't be mad. Take a breath. Let me explain. To get a sense of what we're discussing here, see what a student I met in New York shared. Water is an issue that people don't realize is a problem or they don't realize how complicated it is. And they also don't realize that there is a whole industry invested in trying to make things better. I think 
The industry is not intentionally closed off. It's just, it's harder to find, especially now that we're in climate week. A lot of my classmates in, in school, a lot of times they talk about energy, they talk about carbon, they talk about the renewable transition. Some of them talk about reducing waste. Like those are all incredibly important conversations, but admittedly, they get way more attention than the water conversation does. We get it. The water sector is lame at communicating the challenges it faces. But to quote Mark Zuckerberg, don't be too proud to copy. Why would we always want to reinvent the wheel? Let's just apply what worked for other sectors and verticals. Look at climate change mitigation. Its zero carbon rallying call is known to everyone. Where's our equivalent for water? If we find it, Michel Alderouche's ask will come true. Hopefully in 10 years, you know, people will get like why water is like something essential and not just like the water we drink, but also it's like the water infrastructure and everything around it. Number two, explain how the private sector can and is willing to help. One risk with the daunting water challenges we face is to give people the impression that it's a lost cause. Doom and gloom only work to a certain extent. We also need hope. So now imagine that a significant portion of the solution comes with a bad rap. People have seen Netflix's Rotten and are now convinced Big Water and the private bottled water moguls are the devil's reincarnation. Hello. You know what? It may be. I honestly don't know and don't bother because private capital's involvement in solving the water infrastructure, quality and delivery challenge is an entirely different topic. There is a also a knowledge gap or an educational gap around private capital. We have to know where we're starting from. I've often been very quick to dismiss the role of the private sector. I've often been led to believe that the privatization of water is inherently and unequivocally harmful. It is going to limit access. It is going to make water more expensive. And indeed, those are the kind of things we hear on a regular basis. While I was in New York, I got contacted by the Epoch Times to comment on private capital's rampant takeover of America's water. Okay, now that's scary. Bonus points if it were referring money. All concerns are always legit. I believe having a critical eye is always beneficial. Yet, one must also remain objective. The recent catastrophes that hurts the American water infrastructure had much more to do with the repeated public underfunding and natural disasters than with a greedy private sector taking over. People are afraid about this consolidation issue. What happens if this leads to monopolization? What happens if it leads to corporations taking advantage of us? And I said, why would you necessarily think that it's all or nothing? As James Reese and Seth Siegel suggest, we will have to keep explaining how it will take a village to solve the mess we're in and that the private sector is an essential stakeholder in this village willing to do its part. I hope I can convey that message as efficiently as the Rethinking Water Conference did for some of the students I met. But listening to the harsh realities of the water sector or water infrastructure is extremely underfunded in the United States. And one way to overcome it, like very pragmatically and feasibly, is by privatizing elements of it and I think that was a hard pill to swallow because it's acknowledging that what I've been told in class might be wrong. Now to spread the message we may also need to number three get better at communication. There are a lot of people working in water there are 1.3 million Americans who work in water but there are not a lot of water people who are writers and speakers. 
That's absolutely true. And it is probably not so much of an issue as Seth Siegel and his peers are doing a terrific job at representing us on these bigger scenes. But that doesn't prevent every single of the 1.3 or 1.7, depending on the definition, million water professionals from contributing to the communication effort. How can it be that if anyone's vegan or investing in crypto, all his relatives know about it while people living with water professionals still believe water appears by magic at the tap and disappears when we flush? I'm being extreme on purpose, but there's pride to have in providing 330 million US citizens with reliable, pure and wholesome water and in protecting the environment with state-of-the-art wastewater treatment. That's step one in better water communication, global sector advocacy. But it doesn't stop there. We found people couldn't access a lot of the wealth of data that was out there on climate information. And so it's not just a rethinking of how do we do our operations, but also how do we access the data, how do we use it, and how do we start manipulating it for the future to figure out how to actually put it into action. That's step two, more and better transparency. There's hardly an element that's as closely tested and monitored as drinking water. Why is it still so difficult for an end user to know about it? And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Digital tools are ready to help. It's about time to reap their benefits. Number four, get better at marketing. Yet another communication topic, not at all. What's marketing? Is it a billboard? Is it a press release? No, it's actually understanding a value proposition, mm -hmm. right? There is a value proposition to fairly well anything that is sold, right? And so there is a value proposition for water that the incumbent, which is to say the water industry, needs to address. Like, what is the value of water? That sounds so trivial when Tom Rooney explains it, but it is the critical hurdle we have to overcome as a sector to finally unlock the trillion dollars we discussed in the second chapter. Why would anyone in his right mind invest such an amount in water without expecting at least a minimal return on investment? Water is a profitable investment space, and we must repeatedly outline its value proposition so that anyone gets convinced that first, it's true, and second, that it's excellent news. That's positive thinking. We've seen in the first chapter how there's a 5 to 1 expected return on investment for water projects in the US, given we solve our wrong pocket symptom. Sorry, wrong pocket. And if everyone agrees, there's a value proposition justifying a 500 times more expensive bottled water without a throne. It shouldn't be impossible to do the same for tap water. Number five, increase the water sector's attractiveness. We've seen how money is not the only good we struggle to attract in the water sector. We also face a silver wave. Yet, there are incredible stories to write about the coolness of our sector. On the material side, it's one of the best-paying sectors for the lowly qualified workforce. According to the Brookings Institute, it pays up to 50% more to workers at lower ends of the income scale. Not too bad. Not too bad. But... There's more. Starting a water business doesn't require a marketing makeup to turn a candy into a vitamin. As a standard, almost every water business is by definition a painkiller. And what's cooler than explaining to everyone that you simultaneously save their lives on a daily basis by providing safe drinking water, you save their jobs by ensuring the American industry stays water and climate change resilient and protect the environment and its natural services by treating wastewater. Oh, I see. Silicon Valley's cooler. But is it really? You got a lot of folks getting in the tech industry. But if you're going to digitize and rethink water, just like folks have iPhones and Samsungs, we need people to be thinking about water and wastewater at the same scale or even greater. And unlike Amazon, Twitter or Facebook, our sector isn't firing anyone anytime soon. You mad? 
Tim Cook? I could not be happier. Number six, empower a new generation. On the same line of thought, we need not only to attract people to the water sector, but also to get young people. I know that sounds weird, but I mean... Let me explain myself. First, as we've just seen, because we simply need more workforce, but also and above because we need a fresh breeze, mindset and rebalance of the age pyramid. We need universities around the world to begin to offer scholarships to young folks to get into the water and wastewater industry. You're also gonna need, even at a local level, whether it's mayor's youth councils or even in high school and elementary school to begin to talk about the importance of water. I've explained how solving the water challenges will take a village. Universities will have to play their role in this village. To tell the communities they deserve better and tell the communities that the university will support them in seeking to achieve better. And then working with the agencies to say you're going to deliver better. If we follow the traditional approach and climate change doesn't impact us beyond what we expect, we need one trillion dollars to bring the system in balance. Yet, that's two strong conjectures, hoping for climate disruption to go as planned and betting on a trillion dollars when a once-in-a-lifetime infrastructure bill just capped at 10 times less. A way to take control of our destiny here may be to double down on innovation, speed of adoption and replication of best practices. Who better than the young generation to help achieve precisely this? Number 7 copy what works. I just mentioned this replication of best practices and I already quoted Mark Zuckerberg's famous unofficial Facebook motto, don't be too proud to copy. Well, really, we shouldn't bother reinventing the wheel when it already exists in our cousin or adjacent sectors. The water sector, if you compare it to the energy sector, it lags by seven years. To paraphrase this one is basically, it will take the water sector today seven years, assuming the energy utilities like stop their digitization as they are now, it will take seven years to catch up with it. And it's on us to take this as good news. Are they seven years ahead? Awesome! That means we already have a seven years plan. Is decentralized water and wastewater treatment a good idea? Well, if energy's microgrid is, that's a clear hint. Is circular water management going to hold water? Well, if the entire world switches to reinforce circularity, why would it be any different for us? And so on and so on. That also means we shouldn't behave as a silo. Many of the most brilliant minds I got to meet on my podcast have built awesome things in water coming from an adjacent or sometimes even entirely different sector. That's not a threat. That's a blessing. Number eight, walk the talk. I know it's annoying to hear me preaching what shall be done. Self-awareness could be helpful for you. It's so easy, right? This is why walking the talk is so important. Sure, the water sector by itself doesn't consume so much water, but still. We are a business, so what I'm saying others should be doing, we're doing ourselves in terms of our own sustainability mm -hmm. commitments and goals. We're all getting familiar with the concept of a footprint, be it carbon or water. What Patrick Decker suggests here is that we shall take care of our handprint. Not that it significantly changes the balance, but because it sends a message. What we suggest others to do, we first apply it to ourselves. Sounds like a good idea to me. Number nine, strive to influence. For all of this to be successful, we need to get the word out. I already mentioned how each water professional shall make it his mission to explain to everyone he's coming across what needs to be said about water. But we also need to invest in the next stage. We need advocates, people like me, people like you, venture capital, even government. We heard from the EPA 
in FEMA today saying, yeah, we need people coming out of university. We need new talent with new ideas to help solve this. I'm not saying we need a Kim Kardashian of water. I'm not even sure that would help much. But we need to empower water professionals to go past the Dunning-Kruger syndrome and share their knowledge. Tell us about it. Tell us the story. The water challenges won't solve themselves all alone, and governments, corporations, or trade associations won't succeed on their own. We need each of us to surpass our fears, overcome the apprehension to speak up, and tell the world what we know best. There are solutions to these daunting water threats. Thank you! To that extent, we shall get inspired by approaches like Seth Siegel's. I never wanted to write a book about, oh my god, the world is falling apart. I wanted to write a book about, oh my god, the world is falling apart, and here are the solutions. Mm. Doom and gloom have their merits. It's an opportunity to open everyone's eyes. But once they're open, we have to also show solutions. And we know plenty, as I exposed in this entire series. Good news, it turns out that Rubik's Cube is possible to solve. Yes, the tiles are mixed, and yes, it might sometimes be quite intricate, but there is a path to success. First, we have to acknowledge the challenge, the broken infrastructure, broken policy, broken economics, and the sector's conservatism. But that's not a definitive doom. Each of these challenges comes with its own solution. If we fix the broken economics, we will have the leverage to fix the broken infrastructure and prevent it from breaking further. And if policies get installed and forced, the economic layer will have its ideal counterpart to grow sustainably. Now for the conservatism, I guess if you've watched me thus far, you're probably part of the sector's fraction that wants to move the needle and get things done. Let's not worry too much about the others. If we're convincing enough, they will follow our steps. We can do this, right? I'm sure we can show them an example of good manners to take back with them. Let's prove to everyone that water can be a sustainably profitable field where the right blend of the right capital can make the most impact. Private capital and private know-how will do miracles if allowed to, while public means will round it off, supported with new approaches like philanthropic involvement when needed. None of these sources have the power to rock the boat all alone, but blended, we know them to be unstoppable. Will tomorrow's infrastructure resemble the existing one? Probably not. The world's digitization also opens new perspectives for the water sector. And from point-of-use treatments to point-of-entry or distributed assets, one thing's for sure, the solution will be widely decentralized. This doesn't mean we shall disrupt what works. The system will simply evolve over time and tend to that new equilibrium, where water fit for purpose will be produced much closer to its users. To get the ball rolling, we will need to become world-class at communication, marketing, and education. I guess it boils down to allowing us to influence the world we live in for the better. Again, if we walk the talk and bring a new generation on board, I don't see anything preventing us from striving in the future. Yet, the water world is a moving target, and it keeps evolving under the influence of a lot of internal and external factors. So, if you want to keep up with that wind of change, I'd be happy to support you. Just subscribe to my podcast, shameless plug, and I'll have you covered. Yeah, you better do that. These final words conclude over six months of intense work on the rethinking the American water scene shall undergo. I hope you've enjoyed hopping on that journey with me. If you did, the best reward you can give me is to subscribe to this channel. I'm sure you will help me spread the word, so let me conclude with these last two words. Thank you.